Welcome to The Lead Today. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our national lead and a nation grappling with whether and how to move forward on policing reform, as well as matters of social justice and combating racism. Today, just a few miles from where former police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd, a different family and a different community saying their final goodbyes to Dante Wright. Wright was killed by police last week during a traffic stop. The police chief at the time said that an officer, Kim Potter, mistakenly grabbed her gun instead of her taser and fired it right, killing him. The officer has since resigned and was later charged with second-degree manslaughter. Wright had been pulled over for an expired tag on his car. And then Officer Potter realized that Wright had outstanding warrants, and she tried to arrest him. Like the Floyd matter, which began with a counterfeit $20 bill. Or like with Eric Garner, which began with him selling loose cigarettes. A minor infraction escalating into a white police officer killing a black man. Dante's aunt, in an emotional interview this morning, asked, quote, why do we have to keep burying our babies? Why? Why did he have to die the way that he died? You know, my family had to still come to grips with that. The black community is very accepting, and we accept all. But to keep having our nephews, our sons, our fathers, our brothers and stuff taken from us for no no, no reason at all. It's hard. Just moments ago at the funeral of Dante Wright, family lawyer Ben Crump and civil rights activist Reverend Al Sharpton spoke about the policing reforms they believe are urgently needed. It's too often that traffic stops end up as deadly sentences. It's time to bring a new day where we don't have to videotape when we see a badge, but where we know that they're there to serve and protect, not treat us like we've been convicted. CNN's Miguel Marquez is live for us in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Miguel, we also just heard from the Wright family, understandably very emotional. Yeah, look, the, the Wright family uh, and, and George Floyd's family have, have become very close. The, the Wright family today, very difficult to say goodbye to their 20-year-old son and brother and nephew. Uh, this is, he had, a, he had a, a young child, father of one. Uh, and this funeral was as much a, a goodbye, a very difficult goodbye to Dante Wright, as it was a rally for many others who have died while at, at the hands of police, while they were in police custody or while they were being arrested. All of it raising that concern about equal justice, uh, equality under the law, policing, and how police, when they approach an African-American, why? Why so often is that different than when they approach white Americans? Uh, his mother, his father could barely get words out to talk about his son and say goodbye. His mother was frustrated that the role should be reversed. His, her son should be saying goodbye to him to her. My son had a smile that was worth a million dollars. When he walked in the room, he lit up the room. He was a brother, a jokester. He was loved by so many. He's going to be so missed. (laughs) 
So the fact that Kim Potter, the former police officer at Brooklyn Center Police Department, was charged so quickly with manslaughter, the fact that this week we saw the murder conviction of Derek Chauvin and the death of George Floyd, for the Wright family, for families across Minneapolis and Minnesota and the country, there does feel, it feels like there is a window open now, a window into the lives of, of black people and policing. And the hope is, is that window will stay open and that it will lead to long-term uh, reform. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. Two additional, quite different, but unfortunately both deadly police killings continue to raise serious questions about policing, especially the use of force, especially when it comes to people of color. CNN's Jessica Schneider is taking a closer look for us today. We want to warn you ahead of time, some of the video we're about to bring you is rather graphic. Four shots fired by Columbus police officer Nicholas Reardon, now reigniting a national debate about what constitutes reasonable force from police with the city's mayor urging patience. This is a failure on part of our community. Some are guilty, but all of us are responsible. Police body cam video was released less than six hours after the fatal encounter Tuesday afternoon. It shows 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant pushing a person to the ground before she lunges toward another person wearing pink with what appears to be a knife. That's when Officer Reardon fires four shots, killing Bryant. The video is prompting questions about how police are trained to react to a situation like this. Columbus Police Chief saying officers are taught when to use deadly force. What I can say is when officers are faced with someone employing deadly force, deadly force can be the response the officer gives. But what about the how? On April 11th, a Minneapolis-area police officer shot and killed Dante Wright. Police say she mistakenly used a gun instead of her taser. Back in Columbus, the police chief there pushed back on the idea that his officer could have resorted to a taser instead. If there's not deadly force being uh, perpetrated on someone else at that time, an officer may have the opportunity to have cover distance and time to use a taser. But if those things aren't present and there is an active assault going on in which someone could lose their life, the officer can use their firearm to protect that third person. As for the where to shoot, police across the country are trained to aim for the chest, the largest area of the body. We don't train to shoot the leg because that's a small target. That's just not real world. It's not real life. Uh, uh, we don't get a second, third, fourth take. Uh, and so we do uh, train to shoot center of mass. In Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where protesters are demanding answers after sheriff's deputies shot 40-year-old Andrew Brown Jr. on Wednesday while attempting to serve a warrant. The sheriff says there's body cam video, but has not released it yet. I'm just hoping that the video footage for me that video footage will speak volumes. That's what I'm looking for. I want to see what happened because there's no way, there's no reason in my personal opinion that a warrant should end up in a man being dead. The seemingly endless succession of incidents captured on video where black people have died during encounters with police is renewing calls to change the way policing works. We need a national standard for the way we conduct business. I think our community expects that from us. I think we need to look not only at a first responder model, but a second responder model. We're looking at things in our police department where we'll have mental health 
officers, mental health professionals who will go on these crisis calls. And Chief Barnes's police department has actually implemented a new training model that emphasizes de-escalation and it stresses consideration of mental health when responding to a situation. He says it's called the ICAT training model. And it's actually a model that's being embraced by many police departments across the country. And of course, what has become this moment of reckoning. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. And let's discuss this further with former Chicago police officer Dimitri Roberts and former Tucson, Arizona Police Chief Roberto Villasenor, who was also part of President Obama's National Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Thanks to both of you for being here. Roberto, let me start with you. And let me start with what we saw in Columbus, Ohio, and the shooting of Micaiah Bryant. The interim police chief in Columbus said that if an officer is, quote, faced with someone employing deadly force, deadly force can be the response, unquote. What are the options for a police officer who sees a suspect with a weapon like a knife? Is shooting to kill with a gun the only possible solution? I think that that's going to be dependent on each type of incident that the officer encounters. You can't give one blanket answer for every event an officer sees. We're talking about the one in question. I mean, it was clearly in the middle of a deadly attack with a knife towards the other individual in pink. I don't see what other choice the officer had other than to try and stop that attack and save the life of the woman in pink. And some people talk about a taser. A taser is not 100% effective all the time. It's a very useful tool, but it's not designed for use in a lethal force situation. So in my opinion, the officer had no choice but to resort to deadly force to stop that attack and save that other individual's life. Dimitri, um, obviously, each of these police shootings we're talking about is different. Each one has different situations, different circumstances. When you watch these incidents play out uh, over and over and over again, even though they are different, do you think that there needs to be reform or do you think that the system is broken? Well, it's no question that the system is broken and needs reform, but how do we get to that reform? And the simple answer there is a better use of technology and really a contactless way for police officers not in deadly force situations, but in situations where there can be a peaceful de-escalation of these things simply comes down to the officer and the citizen connecting to each other so they both can feel a little bit safer. They can peacefully de-escalate the situation and bring this to a sensible resolution, unlike what we're seeing in these incidents over and over again. But you, you do disagree with Roberto when it comes to what happened in Columbus, Ohio? I do. But don't get me wrong. I respect um, him and I respect all the other officers that may have a different opinion. But I speak from my experience and that experience is from working in one of the highest crime areas in this country. And what I can tell you myself is along with thousands of other Chicago police officers and other officers around this country deal with situations like that on a daily basis. And nobody ended up dead. So. I didn't hear that officer give any verbal directions. I didn't see him closing distance. But at the end of the day, I've said this before, Jake, and it's worth saying again, it takes a level of courage and it takes a level of commitment and it takes a level of dedication to get involved and to wear the badge and to do the job right. And in my opinion, people dying unnecessarily, especially our children in this country, is just not the right way to do anything. That's not to take away from what the policy on these departments say, but that doesn't mean it is morally and ethically right. And when you find yourself at the hands uh, uh, at the hands of another child dying, 
I can't see how we justify any of this. Roberto, uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio suggested that every police officer in the United States, everyone, should be retrained with a focus on de-escalation. What do you think? I don't necessarily uh, disagree with that. I think that that's an ongoing issue in police departments across the country. When I was on the task force, that's one of the things that we recommended to retrain and re-emphasize for officers the sanctity of life, the use of force only when it is a last resort. And then when that force is used, it's only a reasonable amount of force proportionate to the threat being faced. And once that threat is remedied or dissipated, then the force lessens. You always have to use de-escalation to try and prevent force. That's your first step. And it's not just a tactical move where, you know, de-escalate, talk soft, move distance. It's how you treat people. It's from the get-go when you stop someone on a traffic stop. You treat them with respect. You don't start barking and yelling at them from the get-go. You, you be professional and respectful, and that'll go a long way towards keeping things peaceful. Dimitri, you've been advocating for criminal justice reform for years. Do you think that we're in a different moment in this country where there might actually be an opportunity for the kind of change that you've been seeking? Uh, policing reform, criminal justice reform, in the wake of Derek Chauvin being found guilty of murder? Well, we better be, Jake, because if not, our children, our citizens, as well as our police officers are going to continue to be injured and killed in the wake of incidents, and they don't have to be. So this is a call to not just my fellow officers, but to the country and say, let's not further polarize these issues more than they've had to be. Let's bring are reasonable, sensible solutions to the table, and let's move forward in a way that keeps all parties safe, both police and citizens, Jake. And Roberto, one of the issues I keep hearing from members of the black community, both on air and off air, is how come we in this country continue to see white killers like Dylan Roof uh, taken in peacefully uh, while that we see people guilty of the smallest of offenses, like Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes, ending up dead. What do you say when when people ask you that if they do? I think that they're making judgment based on a small portion of the picture. There's no argument that law enforcement has had disparate impact upon minorities in this country for a long time. However, the way it's been painted in media and social media, it's as if that's the only place that that occurs. There are a lot of non-people of color that are killed in interactions with police officers. And we also forget about the issue of lack of compliance. Sometimes a simple, small event through lack of compliance on the individual all of a sudden escalates into something of lethal force. I'm not excusing it, not saying that's a, you know, an ex- a excuse for bad behavior, but it's such a complex, large picture that you can't look at just one little element of it and paint that across and say, this is what's occurring. There are a lot of people who get injured or, you know, have deadly encounters with law enforcement that are not people of color, but you don't hear about that. Right. But of course, a lot of innocent white people get killed, too. It's not really is not really an argument. It's not good either way. You don't want that either way. I agree with you 100 percent. And and I agree what Dimitri said. Dimitri. Yeah, we we just got to we have to take this moment while we're here and just change the narrative. 
We are both law enforcement professionals here, and we went out every day and tried to preserve the sanctity of life. And that is disproportionately impacting black people in this country at the hands of white police officers. We can't skirt past that. And there's no scenario where that's okay. I, as well as other African-American police officers dealt with these situations in the same way. We have to bridge the cultural divide here. There is a big cultural divide. And when a white police officer is such in fear of a black person because of the color of their skin that they pull out their gun first before they think about anything else, that is the root of the problem. And that's where we have to focus on these issues. But as I said before, Jake, we got to clean house. How do we clean house? There are racist elements of officers in agencies. There are a level of racism and, and division in this country that we need to take out of our ranks, not just in the military, not just in the government, but in our police agencies throughout this country. And that's where we have to start because we can have all the tools in the world, but if somebody's intent is to harm somebody who they don't like or have biases against, mm -hmm. we can have the greatest tools in the world and we're going to still have the same problem. Dimitri Roberts and Roberto Villasenor, thank you both to, uh, for, for coming on today and for, and for your work uh, as law enforcement officers as well. Thank you so much. Coming up, a sea change, the big new climate goal that President Biden just set on Earth Day, plus the fate of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine in the U.S. to be determined, how quickly it could potentially return. That's ahead. In the politics lead and on Earth Day, an ambitious goal from President Biden. He pledged to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half or more by 2030. Now, granted, Biden is using 2005 levels already trending down as his baseline. But still, Biden made this pitch while he had the attention of leaders from many of the world's most powerful nations, including China and Russia, putting pressure on those leaders to follow suit. As CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports. We really have no choice. We have to get this done. With a sense of urgency, the U.S. is setting its sights on an ambitious new climate goal this Earth Day. This is the decisive decade. This is the decade we must make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. President Biden is pledging to cut greenhouse gas emissions in at least half by the end of the decade, almost doubling the goal set by former President Obama. The new goal for fossil fuel use would transform almost every sector of the American economy and could set the stage for a partisan showdown. When people talk about climate, I think jobs. Within our climate response, lies an extraordinary engine of job creation. Biden's pledge is a sharp 180 from his predecessor, who often denied science and defiantly walked away from the Paris Climate Accords. A very unfair act for the United States. The Paris Accord was not designed to save the environment. It was designed to kill the American economy. Biden rejoined the Paris Climate Accords on his first day in office and promised to reverse Trump's policies moves that world leaders welcome today. I'm delighted to see that the United States is back, is back to work together with us um, in climate politics. I'm really uh, thrilled uh, by the game-changing announcement uh, that Joe Biden has, has just made. As the president tries to reestablish America on the world climate stage, he'll have to reassure skeptics, something his climate envoy John Kerry acknowledged today. First question out of people's mouths was, what's your NDC going to be? What are you guys going to do? You, you, you've destroyed your credibility. You've left the Paris Agreement. Uh, how can we trust you? 
what's going to happen in the next four years. Biden is convening dozens of world leaders virtually, including those he's recently clashed with, like Chinese President Xi Jinping. The environment concerns the well-being of people in all countries. The virtual summit may have made history, but it also showed that even world leaders can have technical difficulties. Uh, I now turn the floor to the president of the Russian Federation, His Excellency Vladimir Putin. It kind of felt like the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song should be playing there, Jake, as some of those moments were happening. But in all seriousness, there are questions facing the Biden administration about just how practical this goal that they are setting today is and whether or not they can really meet it because it's not enshrined in law. And of course, he could have a successor who comes around and reverses a lot of his climate policies. But John Kerry was briefing reporters earlier today. He was asked if he believes this is practical. He said it's not only doable, Jake, he thinks they're going to be able to exceed this goal. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. And that brings us to our Earth Matters series. President Biden is taking many of his cues on climate from NASA. That's right. The same brilliant folks who are currently controlling a remote rover on Mars are also using cutting edge technology to try to figure out ways to reduce the carbon gases that are a danger to our planet. CNN's chief climate correspondent Bill Weir shows us how. The signs are unmistakable. The science is undeniable. But the cost of inaction is keeps mounting. You could call it a renewal of American vows. And despite their massive reliance on coal, even China showed up, joining the promise to break an addiction to fuels that burn to save both life and treasure. Green mountains are gold mountains. To protect the environment is to protect productivity. Yes, promises are just promises. But considering that the last four Earth Days came under a president who refused to even acknowledge the emergency. We're at the cleanest we've ever been. Those who trust the science have fresh hope. The environmental movement and the climate community is really hopeful, but very anxious about where we go from here. Even as the pandemic forces virtual rallies with avatars on screens instead of protests in the streets, and the capital lockdown prevents the kind of sunrise movement sit-ins that forced a promise of a Green New Deal, there are worries that members of Congress and corporate greed will get in the way of transforming every sector of the economy. People are concerned that we're just not taking it seriously, and whatever gets proposed History tells us we'll likely get watered down. There are actual very smart people at Harvard considering what is called solar geoengineering to to mimic volcanoes, to send sorties of of airplanes or balloons or rockets to basically try to dim the sun with various substances. What do you think of that idea? As a scientist, uh, I think, oh, well, that's an interesting process and like it mimics what we see with the volcanoes. And you think, OK, well, that could work. And then uh, as a citizen, right, so it's my other hat, I'm thinking, no, this is, this, this is a terrible, terrible idea. As part of his effort to inject climate science into every department in government, President Biden recently made Gavin Schmidt the acting head of climate science at NASA, where they not only measure planet cooking pollution in the sky, but are now using their tools on everything from wind farm planning to carbon-free aviation. For the first time 
since I've been working on this, uh, people are talking about solutions and, and, and reactions that are commensurate with the size of the problem. Uh, you know, it's not, oh, well, let's just recycle our, uh, our plastic straws. You know, the, the people are talking about, um, you know, seriously about how we, how we cut emissions. Uh, right. And personally, that gives me room for optimism. So on the 51st Earth Day, it seems like the age of denial is finally becoming the age of cost-benefit analysis and action. And for young activists like Shie Bastida, who closed out the morning session, it's about time. You are the ones creating and finding loopholes in your own legislations, resolutions, policies, and agreements. You are the naive ones if you think we can survive this crisis in the current way of living. Biden's pledge success will come down to how many around the world understand the enormous cost of doing nothing. And Jake, uh, the Swiss reinsurance company, Swiss Re, did try to put a price tag on this. And with a report today said the cost of inaction by the middle of the century would be about 20% of global GDP. That's $20 trillion a year to clean up after all of those storms. But equally sobering, if we meet the, the goals of the Paris Accords, because there's so much warming sort of already baked in, global GDP will go down 4% regardless. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. And be sure to tune in tomorrow night for a special CNN town hall with the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate and other members of the White House climate team, including Gina McCarthy, Michael Regan, Jennifer Granholm. Dana Bash will host the climate crisis tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Can your favorite basketball player convince you to get a COVID vaccine if you're inclined not to? The new full court press by the Biden administration. That's next. Alarm bells sounding in our health lead today. The demand for vaccinations is starting to dwindle, even though the U.S. is nowhere near herd immunity levels. For the first time in more than two weeks, the daily pace of vaccinations has dropped below 3 million shots per day. So now the Biden administration is trying to figure out how to get vaccine enthusiasm back up, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. I know it works medically, but when you put something in you to help you stop from getting it, you know, that just that just doesn't work for me. So here's who HHS recruited to help fight such vaccine hesitancy. Walter Kim, president, National Association of Evangelicals. Also, the WNBA, NASCAR, a couple of sharks, Seacrest and Ripper. My job now is to make sure that every American knows that this vaccine is available to them, that it is safe, that it is effective, and that they should go and get vaccinated. One report suggests that hesitancy means vaccine supply may outstrip demand within weeks. Are we having fun today? Early in the vaccine rollout, waste was the worry. This is such a precious resource, and really, this wastage should not be tolerated at all. New CNN analysis of CDC data finds through the end of March, one in every 850 doses was unused, spoiled, expired, or wasted. One third of American adults are now fully vaccinated. Dodger Stadium will have a section just for them in the stands. Saturday, the CDC is working on updated guidance for the vaccinated. Average new daily case counts here down nearly 12% in a week. Elsewhere on Earth, a very different story. In India, an all-time global record. Nearly 315,000 new cases reported in one day. We are going through pretty much the worst possible phase of the pandemic. 
Help to save my mother. I love her more than anything. Just one plea on social media. Many hospitals, morgues, graveyards are now full. And back here, federal officials are also mulling over whether to keep or ditch that mask mandate on mass transit. That's due to expire next month. Meanwhile, some states are taking the lead. Rhode Island, for example, just named a date, May 7th. From then, you will not need to wear a mask outside in that state. Jake. All right, Nick, thanks so much. And tomorrow we expect to learn whether Johnson & Johnson can continue its vaccinations in the U.S. We're going to discuss the options on the table and more with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and that's next. Welcome back. So continuing our health lead, the fate of the J&J vaccine in the U.S. could be decided tomorrow. That's when an influential advisory group to the CDC will meet to discuss whether or not the pause in distributing the vaccine should end or continue. This, of course, is in response to the six cases of a severe and rare brain blood clot and whether there was a link to the vaccine. Joining us now to discuss, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, what are the chances that the J&J vaccine will go back on the market tomorrow, but maybe with a warning that in extremely rare cases, the blood clot can happen? I I think that seems like the the, the most likely scenario. You know, we'll, we'll see. One thing to keep in mind is part of the, the advantage of having this, this time over the last week or so is they were seeing if, if were there a lot more patients that were sort of going to declare themselves and say, hey, look, that happened to me as well. In other words, was this a needle in a haystack or the tip of an iceberg? We're not hearing a lot about a lot more cases. So this does. We thought it was rare. It continues to be rare. So in certain cases where people may already have a pre-existing condition, uh, concern about blood clots, the, this may serve as a warning to them. That's what they did in Europe, by the way. Not that the FDA always matches what the European Medicine Agency does, but that seems like the most likely outcome here, some kind of warning. The White House announced uh, new efforts to try to boost plateauing vaccination rates. They're offering incentives for businesses to allow their employees to take time off from work to get vaccinated. Do you think the numbers are slowing because of a lack of ability to get the vaccine or because so many people remain skeptical? Well, we've been doing a lot of reporting on this, and I do think at this point it's still a combination of both. There are still some places around the country where that are just harder to reach. Uh, People have not been able to have the same access to the vaccines, even though they become much more accessible in so many other places. And then you're seeing the impact overall of the vaccine hesitancy or the lack of vaccine confidence. Show this graph if we have it. This is some polling that came out of the Kaiser Family Foundation. But basically right now in the country, about 61% says either they got, they have had the vaccine, they're going to get it, they have no problem with it. The bottom green lines are people who say, you know, only if needed or definitely not. But it's that blue line in the middle, Jake. Uh, it started off at a high level. It's down to 17%. Now, that's the fence sitters, the movable middle, people who, you know, they, they could flip. And the numbers have been coming down in terms of people who are hesitant on that blue line. That's, I think, where a lot of the focus is going to be. A lot of them just want to wait and see, let other people go first, and then they'll go. If they flip and a significant percentage flips, that gets us closer and closer to this herd or community immunity. Yesterday, uh, I had senior COVID advisor to the White House, Andy Slavin, on the show, and he told me the CDC is putting together new guidance for vaccinated Americans like you and me. What's this? You know, how come I still have to wear a mask outdoors, for example? That's a question I asked. Um, What does the science say about what the rules should be for people like us who are vaccinated? 
Well, let me share with you some of the numbers first overall. And we have data now around this, like how likely, how much of the people who are becoming infected are getting infected outdoors? Small percentage, less than 10% of these cases are happening outdoors. That's just across the board. But 18.7 times, that's a number I shared with you earlier last year, Jake. That's the, that's the odds of, of transmission indoors versus outdoors. It's almost 19 times more likely to happen indoors versus outdoors. So keep those in the back of your mind. As a general rule, Lindsay Marr, who's somebody who writes a lot about this, she says, if you've been vaccinated and you are not vulnerable, high risk, you really don't probably need a mask outdoors. But there is some common sense that comes into play here as well. If you're in a very crowded outdoor setting where you're going to be stationary for a long period of time and there's high viral transmission in your community, that's something you can check, then that's going to be more of a risk. It's more of a risk that you're going to breathe in someone else's air and that that air may contain the virus. That, that's basically it. So outdoors in general, vaccinated, not vulnerable, probably don't worry about it. But if you're in a high-risk area and you are considered high-risk yourself, then I think, you know, a mask is still going to be a good idea. If you were to go, you and I are both fans of Dave Matthews. If you were to go to the Dave Matthews concert, mm-hmm. he just announced he's touring outdoor events this summer. Are you going, would you be willing to go? Would you wear a mask? How, how would you handle that? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that it'd be curious to see. I just I just heard about that from you, that they're going to have these these live concerts. Where are we in the country at that point? I think in the summer, what I've been optimistic about for some time is that the rate of transmission at that time may end up being so low that that the the likelihood of me coming in contact with someone who's actually carrying the virus is going to be pretty, pretty minuscule. And at that point, I'd be very comfortable going. If for whatever reason, one of these concerts, and he's having several of them in several cities, one of these cities has a high rate of viral transfer, so viral transmission, then I would be more worried. But low viral transmission outdoors, I'm not vulnerable, I'm vaccinated, I think I'd be good to go. Okay. And I'd like to go. (laughs) Yeah, I know you would. Okay. Me too. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny needs to, quote, immediately stop his hunger strike. That's the plea from five of Navalny's doctors. We're going to go live to Moscow ahead. Stay with us. And breaking now in our world lead, we are just learning that jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny was finally allowed to be visited by a team of independent doctors after he was moved for, to a civilian facility. In a letter first published by MediaZone, his doctors are warning that if Navalny continues his hunger strike, they will have, quote, no one to heal. Navalny started his strike three weeks ago in prison to protest officials' refusal to grant him access to proper medical care. His hunger strike inspired thousands to protest throughout Russia last night. Almost 2,000 protesters were detained. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Moscow for us. Sam, what are we hearing from Navalny today and what condition is he in? Well, earlier on today, uh, Jake, via his uh, lawyers using Instagram and other social media he acknowledged and with gratitude the large turnout that was seen right across Russia in spite of the efforts by the Putin administration to, to suppress uh, public demonstrations. Uh, many thousands of people turned out, as you say there, close to 2,000 were detained. That's down on previous demonstrations in support of Mr. Navalny. And then we had this very dramatic uh, letter from his doctors, as you say there, saying that he is in mortal danger, effectively, and exhorting him to come off his hunger strike because he says, they say, 
after analysis of the independent physicians who did see him, their reports suggest that he could suffer renal failure, some kind of neurological damage, even heart failure, uh, and is already suffering from uh, some kind of uh, fits. So in that context, they have asked him to give up his hunger strike. It's not clear, and I've been in touch with his chief of staff just in the last couple of hours, whether or not Mr. Navalny will agree to give up his hunger strike. And kind of a moot point as to whether his demands for independent uh, attention from physicians have now been met since he has been seen and moved uh, to a civilian institution. So there's a lot to play for here. Uh, but uh, at the same time, his supporters are saying they're going to have another demonstration in favour, in support of his uh, efforts to fight back against his incarceration by the Putin administration and ultimately demanding radical reforms here in Russia. Jake? Yeah, well, that, that's, that begs, right. The, the question then becomes, if he ends his hunger strike to protest the fact that he wasn't able to have independent doctors, now he does, is he going to continue his hunger strike to protest so, you know, his incarceration or the fact that Putin is uh, repressing uh, society, you know, members of society, including Kim? Will he continue? Well, I think if you look at the pattern of his behavior in the past, he was poisoned with Novichok last year. The nerve agent used uh, by in the past or at least blamed on the Putin administration for attacks uh, on, for example, Sergei Skripal. In England, a, d a dreadful uh, poison. He then travelled back here after treatment in the sure knowledge he was going to end up in jail and has since uh, gone on hunger strike. So he is clearly intent on, in, in a sense, ramming himself into confrontation with the Putin administration. And, and the more that Putin oppresses him, throws him in jail, uh, the, the more he, uh, you know, he brings attention to Navalny. Sam Kiley, thanks so much. Uh, we'll be right back. In our out-of-this-world lead, a tiny machine the size of a toaster is helping to pave the way for po the possibility that humans might someday go to Mars. The Perseverance rover successfully made oxygen for the first time on Wednesday. The rover was sent up to the Red Planet in February with an oxygen conversion tool called MOXIE. NASA says the amount of oxygen made by MOXIE on this first test could sustain an astronaut for about 10 minutes. It can even be used as fuel. And finally, today, we want to take the time to remember just one of the 570,000 lives lost to coronavirus in the U.S. Today, we remember Felipe Amador, a 48-year-old dad, husband, and frontline worker at Cedars-Sinai in Beverly Hills, California. For 30 years, he assisted nurses in providing the best care possible for his patients. He was known at the hospital for his compassion. Our deepest condolences to his family, friends, and co-workers. May his memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.